0: And here we go, April the 22nd, 2018, lecture discussion number 20 on the book of Joel. And currently, for those of you who are otherwise encumbered last week, uh, we are slogging our way through the list on the board here. These are the items of Revelation 1, 17 through 19, which I have been saying in the last few weeks that it contains one of the greatest mysteries, if not the greatest mystery in all of Scripture. And appropriately, you would ask, and you might ask, how is it that Revelation one seventeen through 19 is a book of Joel reference or relevance to the prophecy of Joel? That's an excellent question. You should always ask that. Essentially, it's the where are we now question and how did we get there? And we should ask that at a minimum five every five lectures here at beautiful downtown Cliffside, which you know is neither beautiful downtown or anywhere near a cliff. We're across from the zoo, and some people suggest suitability, commentary, considering how we operate here, and we have no rebuttal to that. We're currently having committee meetings to see if we can come up with one. I doubt that we will be able. Anyway, Revelation 1 17 through 19 traces back to get you back to Joel here, traces back to the first day of first fruits because he says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. That's resurrection language from Christ. So that takes us to the feast day of first fruits because Christ says of himself, it is in Scripture, he is that feast day, he is first fruits. And that is 1 Corinthians 15:12 through28. And in 1 Corinthians 15:12 through28 are the three stages of the resurrection of Christ. And it's important to know those three stages, our phases, if you will, our facets, or aspects. Pick your word. Use your own thesaurus. The first one is the dependency of all resurrections on His resurrection. It's a guarantee that his people, the believers, will not be ashamed. Is the second. That's the warranty. That's the second aspect of his resurrection. The third is the delivery of the kingdom to the Father. So let me repeat that. First, I have all resurrections are dependent on his. If he is not resurrected, there are no resurrections. Makes that very clear. our resurrections, the believers' resurrections, are guaranteed by His. And that, and the aspect of that is that we will have no shame. There, that brings an obvious question, doesn't it? I'm looking to see if I wrote it down here. I didn't, so perhaps I'm going to talk about it in a minute, because I'm pretty confident it's in here. Where did I put it? So let me again repeat what I'm repeating. All resurrections dependent on his resurrection. You have to understand what he means by that and why that's so. And how, who's resurrected? Is everyone resurrected? Yes. Some are resurrected to eternal life. Some are resurrected to destruction. But all resurrections are dependent on his resurrection. We as believers have a guarantee that we will be resurrected to life and will not be ashamed. And then the third stage or the third aspect is is that he will deliver uh, the kingdom of God to God the Father that God may be all in all. What does he mean, all in all? And uh, the delivery of the kingdom that is Joel 2:26 through 27 as well as the ashamed aspect of it Joel 2:26 through 27 and my people shall never be put to shame you will not be put to shame then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel I am the Lord your God and there is no other that is part of the guarantee I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. That makes people a little um, angst, to say the least. That is part of not being ashamed. Start beginning to say, why does he say to you, you will not be ashamed? And then he couples it with, I am the Lord your God, and there is no other, and my people shall never be put to shame. These two verses in Joel, along with Joel 2.32, I hope you know where that is now and you're you're re- recovering it every time I say it. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. No exceptions. So Joel 20 uh, 226 through 32 essentially connect directly to the second facet of Christ's resurrection. Christ has become the first fruits of those who will be resurrection resurrected blah, 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 to life, to salvation. And his having become the firstfruits is the guarantee, and that we that rise with him shall never be put to shame. And that means that we're going to be vindicated. And if we're going to be vindicated, who's attacking us? Who's mocking you? Who is saying that you will not be resurrected and that he is not the only God? Who is mocking us? Who's accusing us of being idiots we will be vindicated for our belief for calling upon the name of jesus christ he is the only salvation and there is no other for those who believe that will be vindicated let me repeat who's saying otherwise besides humanity and other religions Along with the certain bearing of Joel 2 to 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 28, it naturally follows uh, to Christ's great directive at Revelation 1, 17 through 19. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. I should circle amen. I will tell you right now, the chances that you run into people in the church community that understand what the word amen means is pretty small. And make no mistake about what he says here. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. That that can't be disputed. That is overwhelmingly a resurrection statement. Therefore, it is a first fruit statement. Therefore 1 Corinthians 15:12 through 28 goes back to Joel 2. And the Holy Spirit through the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15:19, if Christ is not risen, not the first fruits of the resurrection, then we of all men are the most ashamed, pitiable is the word he uses, and that's a chronister blending. I restated Joel 2 with 1 Corinthians 15:12 through 28. Let me repeat it for you so you can see what I've done there. If Christ is not risen, not the firstfruits of the resurrection, then we will be ashamed. And we are to be, of all men, the most pitied because we're idiots. We're idiots anyway. No, that's not a big deal. People don't like me to say that. They say, please don't call us idiots. Listen, I'm in the idiot box with you. It's amazing to me just, and Bill the Fast has said better than I can, he calls us sheep, knowing full well that we are mucus in the front and dingleberries in the back. And that's what we are. And you have to know that about yourself, how easily you will go into traffic. All of us will. That's just what we do. I sometimes think I am a cynical. uh, I'd like to think sarcastic. Sometimes not so much, just silly. But I'd like to think that I am hard to fool, and then I find out the opposite. The confidence that I have in myself is misplaced. So I have to go into the fight or into the room... With an understanding of my weaknesses. And I think it's very important to all of us to be that way, especially Christians. So, again, this blending what I did, if Christ is not risen, not the first fruits of the resurrection, then we of all people are the most ashamed. And so. I suggest saying it that way is not just defensible, it's also justified. Also at Revelation one seventeen nineteen is the context with respect to the revealing of the person of Christ. In here, he he looks different. How do I say it? He's amazing. Now, it's before 1.17 through 19. It's 11 through 16. But it's amazing what he looks like. Why does he look this way? Why did he look the way he looked when he was here in his, what scholars will call his humiliation or in his prophet stage of his three stages of his offices? Why did he look like he looked? How did he look? He was a small, unattractive Jewish man. Why? Now he looks like 11 through 16 of Revelation 1, which is unbelievable. Why does he look that way? What's he saying in the change, if you want to think of it that way, the, the revealing of himself as who he truly is? The sun is out. Oh, my goodness. It was supposed to snow today. I think it was. That is pretty impressive. We should move church outside. What is it out there? 41 degrees? Okay. Those of you on the internet don't visit until at least, what, July, something like that? But Christ is revealed, the revealing of the person that is Christ in Revelation 1, 11 through 16. He is in the third of his three offices, as well as in the third aspect of his resurrection. So to repeat that a little bit differently, he's prophet, then he moves to high priest office, then he moves to judge king office the 3 and then he has the 3 principles of his resurrections all resurrections are dependent on his resurrection his is the first first fruits the guarantee that all who believe in him shall live and not be ashamed and the kingdom will be delivered back to the father so those 3 offices and those 3 principles of his resurrections they coincide they have correspondence now I'm aware that Revelation 1.13 is considered a priest vestment he's wearing something that most commentators say is a priest vestment and not a judge or a king garment but I'm I disagree and I submit in my defense Daniel 7 Christ is the king and the judge in Daniel 7 and he looks the same there as he does in Revelation 11 or 1 through 11 ah level, ugh. Daniel 7, 9 through 14 is identical to Revelation 1, 11 through 19 with respect to how Christ looks. It's the same. Some pieces are missing. Some are added in both. But it is the same. The king judge of Daniel 7, 9 through 14 is revealed to John the Apostle. John the Apostle had not seen Christ as he is in Daniel 7, 9 through 14, the Ancient of Days. And John now sees him. This way, the King Judge in Revelation 1, 11 through nineteen says he's got keys. Where's keys? I have the keys. That's a mystery right there. But again, to repeat, John has seen Christ this way. Now you can say the Mount, uh, the Transfiguration might have been similar, but now Christ has a Vestment, he has keys. He has all of these attributes that I think John saw for the first time. And John falls to the ground as dead. And I asked, what does that mean last week? Is that the same as Gethsemane for the Roman army or the, and the Pharisees and the temple guard? Okay, that's where we about were. But remember, let me, put, let me emphasize Keys. Christ divides the living as he defines living from the dead as he defines death. And the keys have something to do with that. Okay, back to the list now. We actually kind of messed around with the list there a little bit. Everybody loves the lists. I don't know if you know that. Everybody just loves the lists. By far, never. My most requested segment of every lecture series, no one ever said, is the list making. I have a granddaughter who has learned to say, Are you kidding me, Grandpa? I wonder who told her that, taught her that. But but every time I speak, she pretty much says asks two questions. I won't tell you what the other question is. But her favorite one is, Are you kidding me, Grandpa? And the answer always is, Yes, I am. (laughs) Much like the list. Everyone hates the lists. Let's just lay that out there. Please stop making lists. We don't pay you to make lists. I get all kinds of cool comments on it. The Internet is anything but merciful. I do it because it's important to note all the different combinations and individual components and the order that they're in. I can train you to do it without me making lists. Then I'll stop making lists. I'm not that good at it. I can't even see what I wrote anymore. Can't even read. I can't spell anymore. It's all falling apart. You think it's easy? I'll give you the pen, give you a word to spell, but you spell it and write it at the same time. It's a mess. It's hard to do. Hey. Okay. Last week I intended to attempt to infer the possibility of I am he who lives and was dead and behold I am alive forevermore. I'm trying to get you to think along the lines that that is a statement. That at its essence is declaring the entire redemptive work of Jesus Christ in it. So that's a big deal. What is the entire redemptive work of Jesus Christ? By this I mean Jesus Christ redeems those who accepts his offering of his blood covering. He calls himself the Lamb. He means the Passover Lamb. That is a blood reference. The blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb that takes away away sins. That makes us white. What's implied? White as snow. That's commentary from the baby. Don't worry. It's, again, one of mine. I'm responsible. What is... Why does, what does white imply to you? You're not white as snow or white as, or pure white. What are you then? What's your other choices? If you're not pure white, what, what are you? Dirt? Filth? We, his blood is, is, detergent, if you want to think of it that way. I used to call it comet cleanser and a Brillo pad. Maybe you want to think belt sander. But he's got to get us clean. And he uses his blood. That is the process. Why is his blood that? I always used to think, why not saliva? Why not water? But it isn't. It's blood. Why blood? Why is the blood the cleaning mechanism or the cleaning agent so that's included, that cleansing, Revelation seven fourteen. The blood of the Lamb that makes white is included in His redemptive work, in His sacrificial substitutionary death, His resurrection, His ascension, His return. All of that is His redemptive work, as you know, and more. But what is the totality of it? What is included? Let's just give you an example. In the, uh, uh, the cleansing of the sin, the washing away of the sin, the making white that, of that which was blackened. And to repeat again, obviously blood is here, Christ's blood. It's the ingredient, and it's necessary for His blood to clean sin. Why? His blood restores life. We've been through the blood transfusion. He has the life blood you have, I have the death blood. We've got to get our, life, our death blood out and the life blood in, in order for us to live, as He defines life. The life is in the blood. Why? Why is the blood? We're called a religion of blood. the Ju- Judaism be, and Christians, because of our grafting in, we're called this religion of blood. They mock us for it. They accuse us of being uh, simple. But it isn't simple. Okay, so let's kind of take some of this on a bit. Key statements with respect to Christ, Hebrews 7.27, is that Christ is able to save. So, there is an ability issue. He is able. What's the implication? Is anybody else able? Christ is able to save, let me quote it correctly, to the uttermost. Christ is able to save to the uttermost. James 4:12. There is one lawgiver, lawgiver is capitalized. It's a reference to Christ. There is not Moses, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. So I have saved and destroy. Now, together, why? Is he the only one that is able to save? And what is the relationship to destroy, to save? And what does that have to do with keys? Jesus himself, Matthew ten twenty-eight, speaking about himself, said, Fear me who is able to send the body and the soul to, the, to destruction, the lake of fire. Don't fear those who can only kill the body. Fear me who can do, send the body and the soul to destruction. He can destroy it. So he is the one that saves. He is the one that destroys. What's the relationship between save and destroy? Why is he the only one that is able? And the message is clearly established. Jesus Christ is the only one able to save. And therefore, he is the only one who is able to send the body and soul to destruction. If you are the only one who can save, you are the only one who can destroy. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Why is that so? More food is coming. We should all see what it is. It's in a suburban. That's good news. We need, it. We need a lot of food. Can't tell. We'll ask her when she gets in. Jesus Christ is the only one able to save to the uttermost and the only one who can destroy to the uttermost. Why is that the case? How do those relate? Jesus Christ is the only one who judges sin. That's John five twenty-two. So if Jesus Christ is the solitary one who is able to save... How extensive do you suspect? How exhaustive is the saving process? I used to ask, how long does it take to save one body, one person? What's required to save one person? How much power? Again, the entirety, the totality of what is required to save, to forgive sin. Who's able to do this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's Luke 5, 21 through 24. Christ says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to, raise, or to say, rise up and walk? That's also Matthew 9. Which is easier, he asks, Christ does. To forgive sins, or to raise somebody up that cannot walk? And notice, again, who Christ is. Christ is God in the flesh and he's asking this question. Which is easier, to forgive sins, to save, or to cleanse, which is to cleanse, to make white? Which is easier, which takes more power, or to heal a paralyzed man? In this case, what he does in Luke and Matthew, there's one man. First thing he says to the man is, have have, uh, cheer or have Happiness, your your sins are forgiven. And the place panics. Where is he doing this in? As an aside, Capernaum. Paralyzed man is in Capernaum and he forgives his sins in the panic. Uh, hatred just pours out. Christ, God, knowing the leaders of Capernaum were evil, Matthew 9, 4 says... What's easier to do, forgive sins or say, rise up and walk? God chose this paralytic. Why? Why did he choose a paralyzed guy? What are his other options? That's a trick question. He has no other options because he's omniscient. He chooses a paralytic guy. He does not choose a blind man. He does not choose a leper. He doesn't choose a demon possessed. He chooses a paralytic man to ask, what is easier for me? To unparalyze him or forgive his sins? So why did he choose this guy? What's your first thought? Paralytic guy. Where is he? He's in Capernaum. What's Christ say about the people of Capernaum? They're more evil than the people of Sodom. It's better to be the leader of Sodom than the leader of Capernaum. So, what's my first thought? There must be some connection between the leaders of Capernaum and the paralyzed guy. How did the paralytic become paralyzed? He's in a pretty evil place. Those are, I think, valuable questions and interesting questions, but not for today. Let me propose this wording. Christ, of course, could be asking the evil ones of Capernaum, which do you think is easier for me, he could be saying. You think it's easier for me to forgive his sins or to end his paralysis? Which do you think demands the most power from me, he could have asked. Now, they didn't think he could uh, forgive sins because forgiving sins is in the... Per- only God can do that. And they knew that. Only God can forgive sins. So he's declaring himself to be God when he says your sins are forgiven. For those of you out on the internet and uh, who constantly say that Christ has ne- never claims to be God, all he does is claim to be God. He never stops claiming to be God. You just, our church today is just not able to see it. It's a it's a shame. It's a failure of the church. It's just extraordinary. It is beyond obvious that Jesus Christ is placing the forgivings of sins far beyond the physical restoration of a paralyzed body. In other words, it's obvious, it's clear as it can be. Ring the bell. Forgiving sins takes tremendous more power than... Restoring a paralyzed body. Thus, the question. How much more power on the power scale? How many watts do I need? How many joules? How much horsepower? How many watts in a horsepower? 746. How did they figure that out? They tied a horse to a bunch of weight, and they lifted the weight, and there's so much time, and they said, that's a horsepower. It's all completely arbitrary. And then they named it after themselves. There's no chronisters in this. I'm I've, I've still, my representatives have not managed to make me named after any element of physics at all. How much more power? Who is able? Why is this the case that it takes more power to forgive sins? Than to raise a paralytic man. How difficult is it to heal paralysis? How long has he been paralyzed? How badly paralyzed was he? Was his spinal column broken? If so, how did it happen? Were his legs am- atrophied? That's a lot. I got to restore those legs. I got to I got to fuse that and, and completely repair the spinal column, the nervous system, and I gotta him, then I got to get then I got to get his muscles back so that he can just stand up, and walk away. How much power to do that? He says there is no comparison between forgiving sins and the restoration of a paralyzed atrophy body. It's a one-on-one equation, if you want to notice it that way, if you want to look at it that way. The forgiving of sins is placed alongside physical healing. It doesn't matter what the physical healing is. They're all pretty much going to be the same. If I have no eyes, he's got to make an eye. What kind of technology does that require and then he's got to put it in the eye socket and it's got to work. I need a tear duct system. I need to make activate the neurological uh, aspects of the brain that that are responsible for vision. How all those things to do? How much power does that take? Who's doing that today? Nobody. But he puts it side by side with forgiving of sins. So I have the forgiving of sins which is not a physical uh, event. What is the forgiving of sins? It's a spiritual. So there's your dualism again. He is declaring a dualism in this person. There's a spiritual component and a physical component. It's very important to see the Bible do that all the time. Christ do it all the time. He looks at people when he sees a spiritual component and a physical body. We are not. There's a. There's a lot of doctrine out there that says that there is no. Uh, There is no difference. The body and the soul spirit are all one. It's called holism or biblical holism. And it is contrary to what God says. Oops. I suspect the paralytic man, once he got up and started to walk, what did he do next? What do you think he did? You're the paralyzed guy. How did you get there? You're probably beaten there. Beaten to almost dead and laid out there. Now you're paralyzed. And they're making an example of you in all likelihood. This is a very evil place. Incredibly evil. They do evil things there. He could have been... In my lifetime, the most evil that I was made aware of was, of course, Joseph Mengele, who did all kinds of experiments on twins and most, almost all Jews, babies. He was incredibly evil. Uh, he would, of course... Cut people into pieces and see if he could manage to get them back together. Of course, he could not. He escaped uh, capture. He died on a beach in Brazil, apparently. That's what the popular thought is. Now he's in the deepest part of hell he can ever imagine. But there's a paralytic man. He could have been a, a medical experiment easily because of the Sodom relationship to Capernaum. And now all of a sudden he's restored and he's moving. If that's you, what are you doing next? How long are you hanging around in Capernaum? I'm proposing that he left town as fast as he could. Because would they, who would be incentivized to re-paralyze him? Not much different than they, they, once Lazarus, Lazarus was raised, they immediately tried to kill Lazarus again. That's what they did. They didn't want Lazarus running around being a testimony. You can be sure that Capernaum would have had a meeting. But they wouldn't be able to paralyze him again, and they wouldn't do it. Why wouldn't they paralyze him again? Just because I'm off on this tangent that's not in the text that I wrote all this time. Completely ignoring why wouldn't they paralyze him again because Christ would just unparalyze him we'd go back and forth for days how would you like to be that guy actually you'd you'd get to the place where it'd be kind of funny wouldn't it Lazarus walked through his city completely uh, without any fear of death go ahead kill me ha ha (coughs) <coughs> anyway, all of the affirmation, affirmation to this point, uh, trying to cause an analysis of what Christ meant, what he completely co- conveyed when he said, I am, the, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And hopefully my intended purpose has become, uh, begun to sift its way through, it at least becomes apparent. Let me try uh, a different tract here with a question. When Christ, who is the one who lives, announces that he's alive, what's he saying? It seems that he's saying the same thing, but he can't be saying the same thing. So what is he saying? What is the difference between, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen. What's the difference between those two sentences? Because they seem like a redundancy. Well, they're not. So what's the difference? Why didn't he say, I am the one, I'm sorry, I am he who lived and was dead? Because I'd have two past tense. And that but he didn't say that. He wouldn't say that. He would always say, I am he who lives. And was dead. He would never say, I am he who lived. He doesn't say that because lived cannot and does not ever apply to him. Lives does. Alive does. He was lucky. Could have made a mistake there. and said there. With that said, Christ is comparing, I am he who lives and was dead, with behold, I am alive forevermore, amen. He's putting them, the positioning is intentional, he's omniscient God, he wants you to compare the two, wants us to compare the two, figure out what the relationship is, what the differences are. And if there is a difference, and I think there is, if that's true, I'm, I'm confident that there is a difference, what is the difference between the two statements And I submit, I propose, that the clue to solving that is the Amen. When he says, I am alive forever, Amen, that lets you know what he is saying. Let's see if I can make that case. What does Amen mean? You've gone to church your whole lives. Some of you for 75 years or better. How many of you got, Marie? Some people will say, so be it. That's what it means when we say it. That is not what it means when Christ says it. What it means, I'll just tell you, the prophets all say, you see here, the people today that claim to be prophets, they always start out by saying, thus says the Lord. Christ never says, thus says the Lord. Because why? He'd He'd say, thus says me. But he never says, "Thus says the Lord." He always says, "Amen." He says, "Amen, I say to you." That's what it, what he says. It's translated in your Bible. What? Assuredly, truly, verily. But the word is "Amen." I say to you. Isaiah sixty-five sixteen says, "God is the God of the Amen." Are the God of truth. God is the God of the Amen. And Jesus continually, hundreds of times, refers to himself as the God of the Amen. He always says, Amen, I say to you. Hundreds of times in the New Testament. So, how many times did he say it, do you think, in his three years of public ministry? tens of thousands of times every time he said it to a Jew amen i say to you they knew that he was declaring himself to be the god of the amen isaiah 65:16 the god of truth whenever he says amen let me try to explain it the best i can we we don't know that the jews knew that it was him claiming to be god they thought it to be blasphemy. Us Gentiles, we didn't know that it is a claim to be God. We don't know it. We think it's something completely different. It's a shame. I, so what he's saying here is, I am alive forevermore. True. Our truth. I am alive forevermore. Truth. Christ's words are true because he is the Amen. And everything that he says, because he's the Amen, has to be true. When he speaks them, they have to be true. They're made true because he's the Amen and he speaks them. When we use Amen, Murray's right. It means so be it or whatever. Probably not whatever. (laughs) Uh, Who knows what we mean because we're, what's that word I want? Mucus and dingleberries. Here we are again. We don't know that it is a declaration of deity to say, Amen, I say to you. That's what it is. He did it hundreds of times, recorded in scripture, tens of thousands of times. There was nobody who did not know that he claimed to be the creator God, the God of the Amen. Everything he's speaking, he's declaring it is true. Everything. Everything. By being the God of the Amen. When we use it, we're only able to confirm or bless the words or prayers being spoken by others. And we don't even know if the words are true. Our Amens are powerless. His are powerful. We say Amen like we would say Gesundheit. Or whatever. Or right. Or like. Who knows what we mean. By uttering the words, Christ makes them true because he is the God of the Amen. So he is alive forevermore. That's what he says. What does that mean? It's true. Everything he says is true. But it's different than I am he who lives and was dead. And I tried to lead everyone in Lecture 19 and today to consider that he is referencing the forgiving of sins, the process of what is required to forgive sins, turning us white. The thief in Luke 23:42, uh, he said, Lord, remember me. And Christ said back to him, Amen, I say to you, what he said. I could give you the Greek. You can look it up. Either one. I have it here if you want to see it after the lecture. I don't have room to write it on the board. The thief says, the one that is saved, the saved thief, Lord, remember me. And Christ says back, Amen, I say to you. Luke 23 to 43 is the question of the comma. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Maybe I should take time. To to deal with that, That, because it looks like I have time. Yay, me. When did I start? Do you know? How much time do I have before I completely go crazy? Is that true? That's all I have? Oh, well, that's better. I have to count. There's two hands. Four hands total. Some kind of decimal point in there, I guess. Okay, well, good. I'm cruising along here. I have to hurry because we have biscuits and gravy. And steak and eggs. I'm guessing. Where's Robin? Steak and eggs? Almost. How about that? Huh? I must be some kind of seer. I'm car- I gotta be really careful there. <laughs> Get to that in a minute. Uh twenty three forty two. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's a piece of doctrinal truth that's extraordinary for a dying man. He knew that he was going to come into his kingdom. And what does he do when he comes into his kingdom? He delivers the kingdom, which means he's got. that's the third phase of the resurrection. And this thief wants to be resurrected because in about three minutes, he's dead. Not a good day. Maybe a couple hours. And Jesus said to him, Amen, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And this is where the question of the comma or the punctuation becomes critical. The earliest Greek manuscripts, as you're probably aware, didn't include any punctuation. They've been added in by commentators and transcribers and translation uh, of efforts. At Luke twenty three forty three, the comma can be placed in three places. In your Bible, I'm going to guess that you have it after you, the first you. Uh, amen, I say to you, comma. Is that where it is? It could be there, or it could be. Uh, there's really really three uh, locations. You can put it before today, after today, or both before and after today. And some Bibles will have all, will have both, or they'll have in the margins that that comma can move around. Let me try to do it. Amen, I say to you. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Or, number two, I'm, amen, I say to you today. You will be with me in paradise. See the difference? Or three, amen, I say to you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Number three is potentially either number one or number two, leaving the correct understanding unresolved. Not much different than no punctuation. But read it with no punctuation and then decide where the comma should be. You can figure it out. Did he say, Amen, I say to you today? You will be with me in paradise? Meaning that they're both going to be in paradise today? Were they both in paradise today? That day? Did Christ go to paradise that day? Did the thief go with him? Or did he say, amen, I say to you today. So today I'm saying to you. And it's true, because I said it. He's the God of the amen. You will be with me in paradise, saying today, you will be with me in paradise. So you know today that you're saved. Do you know when you're in paradise? What day you're going to be in? Luke 23, 43 brings 1 Peter 3, 19, 20 to the discussion. If my lab was here right now, she would be on top of me. Okay, good. What was that? A timer. Oh, for the steak and eggs. Fantastic. My Labrador retriever, the, 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 the female, bless her heart, cannot stand those noises. And we don't even know they're happening. We can't hear them. And she is on top of one of us trembling. We're as you can tell by the grandchildren we're not very good at this parenting thing at all <laughs> anyway luke twenty three forty three brings first peter three nineteen twenty to the discussion. Christ makes a proclamation to the bound demons there he goes he's His body is in the tomb. Three days, three nights, right? He goes and makes a proclamation to demons that are bound. He's the one that bound them. And he's making a statement to them. He comes and proclaims something. What does he complain? This is the compliment, the New Testament compliment to the two goats of uh, the Old Testament, Leviticus 16. The goat for Azazel. Had somebody bring this up to me just the other day. Raise your hand if your name is... Oh, I can't say his name, Christopher. But this is the goat for Azazel; he is going to where the demons are bound. he 's going into the wilderness, making a proclamation. Goat for Azazel is released. I had two goats. one has a sin it 's slain. the other one is not slain. Both of them represent something that Christ will do. This is where Christ does it first peter three nineteen and twenty. The goat goes into the desert into the wilderness to be seen by Satan as a testimony as a proclamation. That that goat has no sin on it. Because all the sin of Israel is on the dead goat. And it went up in smoke. So why did Christ go to the bound demons? Why go there? Why did he do it? On what day did he do it? Where was the saved thief? Did he say, you're going with me today? Or did he say, today, amen, you're saved today. And again, you've got three nights and three days to choose from to figure out when he went to see those demons. Because he did it for today, Comma. we focus on the remember me. That remember me is amazing. Luke twenty three forty two. Lord, remember me. The saved thief acknowledges that Jesus Christ is the omniscient remembering God. He is the one who remembers. He is the rememberer, and he has a kingdom. The thief had that figured out. How did he do that? What did he see? I'm telling you that Christ's control of that crucifixion was extraordinary. Saved that thief. Saved all those Roman soldiers. The Jews went away beating themselves in agony over what they saw. Never think this crucifixion is anything like what Hollywood portrays. It is not. His voice is extraordinary. It's loud. It's deafening. You can't even stand there. This thief says, that's the rememberer. That's God himself. That's the one who's coming with the kingdom. And remembering has implications. It has salvation implications. Also, to be remembered by God is to be perceived by God. That tells you that it has existence implications or ramifications. Our existence, all existence of all things is connected to the remembering, the remembrances of the Creator God. Remembering also embraces the principle of the names being written into the Book of Life, the Lamb's Book of Life. Revelation 3, 5. Gotta run now because I messed around, got in trouble. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name out from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Why does God feel, why does Christ feel it is necessary to confess the name of those living, or those written in the Lamb's book of life to the angels? Why are they a part of that? Why does he go and talk to the bound angels? Remember, he's going to save and he's going to destroy Those who are written in the Lamb's book of life are what? They will not be blotted out. If he blots you out, what does that mean? What's happened to you if you're a blotted out? Or if you're just a blotted? Obviously, names written in that book will not be blotted out. It's a guarantee. Which one of his resurrection uh, principles is that? But there's other books. Let's go look at other books. you remember me doing this, saying I was going to get to it someday? Today's the day. Then I saw a great white throne on him who sat on it, from, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. Think about that. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. This is Christ, the Ancient of Days here. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is of life. So I have the Lamb's book of life, and now I have another book of life. So one is the book of the saved. The other is the book of... What's the other book? It's another book. And the dead... "...were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and, the, and death and Hades... Here you go. "...and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them." And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of the Lamb's book of life was cast into the lake of fire. I added a little commentary there for you. Notice what is written in the, in the another book. And notice what is not written in the Lamb's book of life. Saved and destroyed. The thief knew that the one who remembers was the one who writes the names into the Lamb's book of life. And he's saying to him, you're the one who remembers, you're having a kingdom, write my name in that book. Because I'm going to die. How did he figure that out? Eventually, all of this, the books, the names, the blotting out, the written, the not written... These subjects are going to require us to investigate how God cleanses sin, how he makes believers white. What's that process is to repeat from last week. How does he remember our sins no more? Hebrews eight, twelve, ten, seventeen. How does the rememberer not remember? What's that process? Jeremiah twenty three, thirty seven through forty. God says to those who pretend to speak for him, those who say, thus says the Lord. You should be scared if you say that. He doesn't say it. He says, Amen, I say to you. But God says to those who pretend to be prophets at Jeremiah 23, 37 through 40, Therefore, behold, I, even I, he says, will utterly forget you. There's a warning. I, even I, will utterly forget you. How does the rememberer, the omniscient God of remembering, how does he forget? He said, I will utterly forget you and forsake you and will cast you out of my presence. He's the one who saves, he's the one who destroys. Because he's the one who saves, he is the one who destroys. Because he is the one who destroys, he is the one who saves. That's an ominous warning, Jeremiah twenty-three thirty-seven through 40. You'd think that those who anoint themselves, I've heard hundreds of these guys stand up. Women as well stand up and declare themselves to be a prophet and say, thus says the Lord. And I say, go read twenty-three thirty-seven through 40 of Jeremiah. That should scare you to, to stop. It doesn't scare them. I'm going to say, thus says the Lord. What am I going to do? I'm going to read this. Because I know the Lord said this. I'm not going to make up some junk. It's not going to do it. Why? I'm afraid. Where's the fear of God? I used to have a wonderful friend. Always used to say that to me. Where is the fear of God? He'd watch what goes on in these churches and all the churches today. And Where is the fear of God? You'd think those who anoint themselves uh, as prophets would be concerned about Jeremiah twenty-three, thirty-nine and Ezekiel thirteen, eight, but they are not. How come they're not? Power and money, baby. Back to the subject. How can omniscience be reconciled with forgetting or remember no more? That's a great mystery. What does he, what does this have to do with I am the alive forever? Amen. Well, I'm going to take a run at it here really fast. Jesus Christ is the unimaginable solution to sin. None, and by none I mean the angelic realm, because he goes and talks to the angelic realm. Those who are destroyed and those who are still with the Father talks to both of them. None could conceive the solution that would bring harmony to the justice, the holiness, the purity of God and the love and the mercy of God that wills that none should perish. It seemed impossible. It's Genesis 15. Genesis 15 declared it to be true, but no one could figure it out. Christ is the impossible revealed to be possible. Behold I am alive forevermore. Amen. It's him showing himself as proof as evidence that your sins have been removed. Our sins, the sins of the saved of the believers has been removed he drank the cup the cup of sin and death and did not die the sins of the cup you've heard me say many times contain the sins of the believers he drank that cup and did not die our sins did not kill him I am so sick and tired of people saying my sins killed Christ That's arrogance that I can't even begin to attack. What else did you do that killed Christ? You killed Christ. Congratulations. You, this little tiny speck, killed the infinite God. How would you say something like that? Good luck defending that. Our sins did not kill him. Nothing. No one can take his life. No one can kill him. No sin of yours can kill him. He must give his life. He must give his life. Now, at Revelation 1, 17 through 19, he says, Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. What does he mean? What he means is he's the solution to sin. How many solutions are there? Who else is the solution? Who else is able to drink the cup and not die? He gives his life to prove that he must give his life. He sacrifices himself because he is able to sacrifice himself. No one else is able to do that. No one else can sacrifice themselves for sin. No one else can take the sins away. Where did the sins go? Where does he put them? How far did they go? Yeah, he. that's a statement of infinity. How far is east from west? How is it that they're forgotten? Why is he alive forevermore? Why is he pure white? Why is he shining? Repeat the question. How far away is the sin? Where did he put it? How big is infinity? Christ has cast the sins of the saved into infinity. Which is himself. Why does he have the keys to Hades and death? Does he need keys? Take the keys away from him? What do the keys look like? How much do they weigh? Little tiny keys, great big keys. Is he holding on to them? They're around his neck. What's he doing here? Can he open the key? Can he open Hades and death without keys? Why does he have keys? Keys symbolize authority, control, power. Christ has power over Hades and death. That means he's the one that can destroy. I am the one who destroys. I am the one who saves. I am the one who destroys. He can and he will. He will cast Hades and death into the lake of fire, Revelation 20, 14. So who are those in Hades and death they are the ones who are not written in the lamb's book of life Christ is he who writes the names and therefore he he who omits the names to write the names is to save to omit the names is to destroy he is the one who saves and destroys he decides who is alive and who is dead as he describes or defines life and death I had a question there at the very end let me find it again Oh, people comes in. He decides who's alive and who's dead. What's he based it on? He figured it out.